0: Showtime 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 Hello and welcome to the Showtime movie podcast It's Showtime once again I'm show as usual Thank you for listening as always This is episode 24 Hard to believe, eh? 24. Next time will be 25. I want to try and do something fun for 25, you know? I want to do something a little different. I don't know what yet. Maybe if you guys have some suggestions, hit me up. You know, the email. Twitter is at Showtime Movies. My personal Twitter is at SNS Allie, S-N-S-A-L-L-I. But we are doing something a little bit different today. We are working on three reviews. So the movies we're going to be talking about today, three of them... I think in terms of themes, and I know I've kind of gotten away from the themes bit of the podcast, you know, sometimes i like to work it in if we can, and today I feel like the way to work it in would be that the three movies we're, we're going to be talking about are bad, good, and very good, or maybe a better way to state it is bad, average, and good. We're going to go actually in that order. We're going to go bad, average, very good, so those are going to be the three movie types, and... If you're listening to the podcast, you probably saw the title, so you know that the order of movies are Hotel Artemis, Ocean's 8, and The Incredibles 2, and those are the, in that order, bad, average, very good movies, so you'll hear why in a sec, so let's get started right away with Hotel Artemis. I, wise men, but I turn the other way a bit of a spoiler to start off the podcast by saying this is the bad movie, but you know what, I just, I guess I'm just a little surprised at how bad Hotel Artemis was. Okay, let me read you the list of the stars in this movie, okay? Sterling K. Brown, Jodie Foster, Dave Bautista, Sophia Boutella, Charlie Day, Zachary Quinto, Jeff Goldblum. Jenny Slate's also in the movie too, right? So you have all of these big-time stars, very famous people, and I just, it baffles me. How does a movie with that much potential, that many stars suck so badly? I am just shocked. I was, honestly, I was shocked at the end of the movie just how much I disliked it. Honestly, it was not great. The The basic premise of this movie is that Hotel Artemis, the hotel itself, is a place where criminals can go, is kind of a criminal... Haven, let's say They have to be an upkept member of this place You know, you pay your fees, I guess As a member of an association of some sort You know, you're not allowed any weapons inside the hotel premises You dump them in some bin just outside the front gate No names, all the name, all the characters are named after the suites they stayed in But th- I feel like the trailer of this movie was very misleading The movie made it seem as though Or the trailer made it seem as though The hotel was a giant actual hotel From floor to top That there was tons of rooms available. The truth is, when you see the movie, there are only, what, five rooms? And because the the hotel actually is just the penthouse level of a former hotel. The movie takes place during the kind of near-slash-distant future, near-future, let's say, um, of California, where a private corporation has bought up all the water, and so there are water riots in California and Los Angeles and uh, people are getting injured, and, you know, these two criminals use the riots to rob a bank, and they rob the bank, you know, money, so on and so forth. And they also steal a kind of a pen, it looks like, that has a bunch of diamonds inside, we later figure out, that belong to the wrong criminal, right? They stole from the wrong criminal, as usual, in those kind of situations, and they're afraid the Wolf King, I believe as he's called— is going to come and kill them because he's the guy who runs Los Angeles basically and he's the biggest gangster in the city. He's going to come get their diamonds back. His diamonds back from them, right? So that's the kind of basic plot, the basic setting to set the stage, but it's just so wasted. It's so squandered, like I said, right? Every single character is underutilized. And I want to start with Jenny Slate. She's in the movie for about 5 minutes and people claim she's used to humanize Jody Foster's character who's only ever referred to as the nurse, right? And They could have very easily have shown it in a few flashbacks because all they do for Jodie Foster's character, even before Jenny Splate appears on screen, is that she's missing her son. Her son clearly had died relatively recently and she's kind of retreated to this nurse role for criminals to kind of regain a sense of helping people because she used to be an actual nurse and then after her son died, she becomes an alcoholic and, you know, the you know, powers that be in the world set her up in this hospital, and then she's now helping criminals. She's still helping people, she's still healing people as as she wanted to be as a nurse, but now it's criminals instead of, you know, regular people. And Jenny Slate's character is a character who used to know her son, and I guess rumors were that her former neighbor um, was now in this hotel helping people, so she comes here because she was a cop who was injured, and of course that's another rule, no cops, and I don't know this movie is just so not good. Like what was the what was even the point of Jenny Slate's character? She comes, she gets healed, she leaves and then everyone claims, everyone being critics and other fans who have seen this movie and everyone claims that she was there to humanize Jodie Foster? I don't think so, right? Jodie Foster's character didn't need any humanizing, right? She are, we already knew she made mistakes. We already knew that she missed her son. The Wolf King, as we learn, who is played by Jeff Goldblum, as we see in the trailer, the Wolf King is coming to the hotel anyways, as we ver- learned very quickly on in the movie. So... And 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 then you learn that Jeff Goldblum in the movie had something to do with her son dying, and he she would have learned that regardless, right? She would have learned that because the Wolf King gets doped up, and while he's doped up, he talks about how he like had her son killed because of X, Y, and Z. Honestly, the reason was kind of dumb; doesn't really matter. But you learn that that's what ultimately triggers all the crap. Then you don't really feel bad for Jeff Goldblum because you know he's a, he's a gangster, right? And If that's the case, right, if that's where the development for Jodie Foster's character could have come, and it was still only like 15, 20 minutes later than Jenny Slate's character leaving anyways, and what was the point of even having Slate in the movie in the first place? Let me give you the answer. There was no point, because they clearly did not think it through. It was a bit disappointing. Jenny Slate was kind of... I almost find it hard to buy her as a cop after seeing her in things like Parks and Rec and herring voice acting, like in The Secret Life of Pets and whatnot, but I don't know. It was just... I was a little disappointed. Same, the same kind of goes for Zachary Quinto, honestly. He's, he's in the movie as the Wolf King's son, and he's barely more than a glorified cameo. I would say he's on screen for about five minutes, and Jeff Globlum himself as the Wolf King is completely misused, right? The movie makes a huge deal about him being this feared gangster, the fearsome Wolf King, and how these, you know, we learn how the, Two brothers in the beginning heist scene steal these rare diamonds from him. They're these rare, like, yellow conflict diamonds. God knows why. But we learn that at the very beginning of the movie. And they they go on and on and on about, oh, the Wolf King's going to want those back. The Wolf King's going to come for you. The Wolf King wants his money. The Wolf King wants his diamonds. The Wolf King this. The Wolf King that. And then when the Wolf King does actually appear in this movie. He has no idea about these diamonds. The diamonds don't even matter. This major plot point has nothing to do with what happens in this movie. I could I could not believe it because they make such a big damn deal about it. I really wanted to cuss there, but trying to keep it clean. But it was just so disappointing. I just couldn't believe that this major aspect of the movie it had absolutely nothing to do i think at the end they're trying to escape from zachary quinto and and sterling k brown's character goes and says hey we'll give you these diamonds if you let us go and he's like, okay and then they kill him anyways right i don't know there was just no point to the wolf king and again i mentioned the trailer made the movie seem kind of misleading and the trailer just goes out of its way to make it seem as though these two brothers go to the bank with the intention of stealing these diamonds. Then, you know, something goes wrong, they get injured, they retreat to the hotel, the Wolf King finds out his diamonds have been stolen, and he follows them to the hotel to retrieve his diamonds, but he can't get in because of the rules of the hotel. The nurse enforces the rules, the orderly enforces the rules, the other denizens occupants patients whatever you want to call them at the hotel they're enforcing the rules so the the wolf king has to break in and they have to withstand the break-in that was so much more of an interesting premise than what we actually got in this movie and it's just so incredibly disappointing i also said same goes for zachary quinto in terms of his character being disappointing and underutilized, et cetera. Jeff Goldblum, of course. And the same goes, again, for Sophia Butella, right? Her character, who is an assassin, her fate is kind of left up in the air because you learn that she has a history with Sterling K. Brown's character. You know, they were either in love or you know, they, they're they always attracted to each other and they always wish they could kind of go on the, go together. But, of course, Sofia Boutella, like, she, you know, she's an assassin and he's a crook and so on and so forth. So, they you know, they kind of go their separate ways and they, re, they re-meet, meet again, re-meet's not a word, they meet again in the hotel and, you know, they kiss and they kind of somewhat, I guess, rekindle their romance. And at the end, when the Wolf King's goons break into the hotel... Sophia Butella's character decides to stay behind because Sterling K. Brown's character was injured. I say, I I always, I know I'm saying Sophia Butella's character and Zachary Quinto's character and Sterling K. Brown's character. It's because all of the characters are named after their suites. So they're named like Niagara and like Ohio and all these other things, right? I mean, those aren't actually, I think Niagara is actually one of the names, but the others are not. But, you know, they're named after places in the world, and I forget, honestly, what they're called, and frankly, I, I don't care enough to look it up because this movie was so bad, but like I was saying, Sophia Butella's character, she essentially sacrifices herself to let Foster and Brown's characters get away, right, when there was no reason to, right, because I don't really understand, because you learn that there is an elevator, a secret elevator hidden down this passageway, and... She pushes them in the elevator and closes the gate and then pushes the button to let them go and then comes back and waits in the hallway for goons to break into the hallway so that she can fight them and I guess delay them from getting to the elevator. But the issue is that the bad guys don't even show up to fight her and actually to even find the elevator for a good few minutes, which was more than enough time for her to get in this elevator and just take it down, what, 12, 15 max Flights, maybe 20 let's let's say 20 right it won't take that long for an elevator to go down 20 flights of stairs because even if they were to call the elevator back it's not like the elevator would have stopped mid go going down and coming and come right back up right it would have just gone down then it would have come back up so they had they have more than enough time and then of course they fight zachary quinto as the quote unquote final boss fight in the uh kind of like the lobby of the main the actual Hotel's building before it was known as the Hotel Artemis. I don't know. It was just kind of silly. It just seemed like a, a poor excuse for Sofia Butella's character to fight these guys. And it was really cool, admittedly. Like you, you could see her, you know, do all these badass martial arts and all these other things. But it still made no sense. Like there, there was no reason for her not to go with him for with Sterling K. Brown, I should say, and then to start a new life together because they were clearly hinting at that. And then she stays behind and sacrifices herself for pretty much no reason, right? And again same goes for charlie day he's his arms dealer and he only seems to be in the movie to serve as a plot device to ensure a weapons gets inside so that sterling k brown's character can use it right otherwise he was more or less useless and he wasn't even funny like he usually is which was weird right why even have charlie day if you're not gonna use him to be funny the jokes were just kind of dumb there was one good moment i guess when brown has his hand on day's suit and he goes you know, hand off the, the Gooch man, or or I'm gonna stuff it up your ass, or something stupid like that, right, and it kind of got a few chuckles, I guess, but that was the only good part for Charlie Day in this entire movie, and then he just dies, right, so, I don't know, what's the point, what's the point of even casting him, I don't, I don't understand, I, I really don't, but hey, I ragged on this movie a lot, right? So I figured I should say something good. And I'll say this. The best part of this movie is undeniably Dave Bautista. He's the orderly that works at the hotel, the giant kind of orderly who, you know, busts up the unruly patients. And they show you that at the very beginning. And his deadpan humor is so fantastic. And, he, you know, as he begrudgingly goes along with the nurse's plans for things, even when they break the strict rules of the hotel, he's just Fantastic. I love seeing Dave Bautista in things, and he's not, I think he's proving that he's not just the Drax character that we all know and love, even though that is a great part of his repertoire, his humor repertoire, and he uses a deadpan humor to great effect in Hotel Artemis, but you see that his character also does the things he does out of this care he has for the nurse herself, and he's easily the best part of the movie, but again that's really one of the only good parts of the entire film, his character. And he's in so sparingly few scenes, right? As if they didn't want to re- un- overuse him when if they just made this guy, the star it would have been probably that much better. Right. And the movie at the end of the day just has a lot of tell, but not show, right? We look, we learn, for example, that there are other numerous criminal healings, kind of hotels all around the world and that people have to be paid up for each one individually. and We see kind of the scars that on some of the guy's wrists that kind of signify all the different hotels but we don't learn about them more than one-off lines i don't know you know what here i want to wrap up this review because i don't want to talk about this movie anymore frankly it wasn't very good don't be like me okay don't spend your hard-earned money to see this in theaters like i did do what i say not what i do in other words right just wait for netflix because honestly you'll be doing yourself a huge favor Okay, let's talk about something a little more fun. We'll get to the next movie with this review, the latest addition to the Oceans universe of heist movies, Oceans 8. Despite the number, this movie is actually a sequel of sorts, the Oceans series by Steven Soderbergh, you know, starring George Clooney and Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, etc. These ones, however, are all women, and it's honestly a pretty fun ride. This one stars Sandra Bullock, Kate Blanchett, Anne Hathaway, Helena Bonham Carter, Sarah Paulson, Mindy Kaling, rapper Rihanna, and rapper Aquafina. right? So, let's get the bad stuff out of the way first, okay? It was predictable, and some of the performances weren't great. But I have to say that that's a pretty limited list. The only performance I didn't really care for was Aquafina's, honestly. I just feel as though the humor with her was a little stilted, a little more rough around the edges, I guess, as opposed to it being a little smoother with Rihanna, for example. I think I don't know. I, I just I don't I guess I just don't really care for Aquafina as an actress all that much. Although I will admit that when Rihanna first started acting, you know, when she was in movies like Battleship and stuff, I did not think she was great. I don't necessarily think she's a great actress, but I thought she was fantastic in Ocean's 8. And I think that's kind of the same thing with Aquafina, right? I think she has to get kind of her her sea legs, or lack of a better term, underneath her, because I don't necessarily think she's a great actress. I'm all for representation, not even just for women, but for Asian women and for other minorities, right? Because we have plenty of white, white girls in movies these days. I, not that we need more of them. Not that we need less of them. We definitely need more women in general, but... I'm all for minorities as a minority myself getting more representation but Aquafina like just wasn't that great I guess the best thing I could say about her acting is that they make no reference to her being Asian it's all about her just being a grifter I guess you know we we first meet her because she's like you know hustling some guy cards she's like the Matt Damon version of this of this movie I mean when I say Matt Damon I don't mean she's as important to the crew as Matt Damon was that would probably be Helena Bottom Carter initially at least it changes later on I suppose but Matt Damon was first pulled into the crew because he had slick hands, and he, you know, we, we in the first Ocean's Eleven, we see him rob a guy. He bumps into him on the bus, and he takes the guy's wallet out of his jacket. So, in that sense, that is the that's what Alkafina's role is. It's just that she's not a very good actor, honestly. She's just not. But whatever, we'll move on from that. the The predictable parts that I mentioned before that really brought the movie down as a whole. It was because they were very glaring things that stuck out, right? So I'll say this up front. Most of the time, you guys listen to the reviews I put out after you see the movie. And I'll say this. This is a bit of a spoiler, so if you don't want spoilers, just skip ahead to The Incredibles 2. But the spoiler is this. Anne Hathaway joins the crew after they pull off the heist, right? But it was so predictable, if only because the movie is called Ocean's 8, and without her, it's just Ocean's 7. And here's why I think the trailer, the title of the movie, I should say, really gives it away. They didn't count Andy Garcia in the first one, right? But they did count him in Ocean's 13 because he was actually a part of their con in the first one as opposed to the person they rob in Ocean's 11, right? I don't know if that's just a bit of a faux pas or if I'm just reading too much into it, but if they didn't do it for those, then they shouldn't have done it in this one either. You, if you look at the actual uh, poster, right, it's probably because Anne Hathaway is such a big-time star that the way it was, it was, it was shown is that in terms of the—it was kind of like a shutter, and all of the eight women are standing in each kind of shutter blade, I guess, for lack of a better term. So there's Sandra Bullock at front, then the second one is as uh, Kate Blanchett, and then the third one is Anne Hathaway, right? And so Anne Hathaway is the person they are robbing in this movie. She is the kind of focal point of their con, their scheme, whatever you want to call it, and yet— she completely figures them out she joins their crew she's not in she, it, that's the other thing too it wasn't a twist because she's not suddenly like she wasn't in on it the whole time she just notices i guess she just is very observant and decides to help them out because she's bored that was the pl- that was the plot point she doesn't have a lot of female friends so she joins them be- instead of turning them in because it's fun instead of you know being a snitch i guess i don't know it's kinda silly i thought but I will say this, more and Hathaway in a sec, but the next predictable bit was that they stole more than what they let on. And why is that predictable, right? Because every single other Oceans movie is built and predicated on the fact that there is a twist coming, right? So here here are the three twists. Oceans 11, the twist was that the casino vault switch, you know, the one they, they build another vault and then they they fool Andy Garcia on the security cameras with the emergency crew at the end who steal all the money instead of just half the money, whatever, Right. Ocean's 12 twist was that the female agent who arrests them all at the end is Matt Damon's mom, right, because you learn that his parents are both criminals, and you learn that his mom is this like agent embedded, and she gets them out of this big time jam, I think it was Interpol, I want to say, or maybe she was FBI, I forget honestly, but she was some kind of law enforcement agent, and she chooses him to interrogate and you learn that she is his mom, so she lets them off because she's really a secret criminal, right? Ocean's 13 had the male FBI, I think he was FBI, maybe he was also Interpol, actually, but Ocean's 13 had the male law enforcement agent at the end who arrests Matt Damon again, is the dad, right? So here you have the mom, and you have the dad, so all that stuff was great, but it means that you expect that there is some kind of twist, right? It's like that in a lot of heist movies, even going back to The Sting with Paul Newman and Robert Redford, like however many years ago that was, in the 70s, I think, right? So... We expect it, and the problem was that the only things they could feasibly have done in this movie without completely shattering the illusion, with you thinking, how the heck could they have possibly done that, was stealing the other jewels on display at the museum, which are glaringly shown a bunch of times, right? They go out of their way to show you, the viewer, that here are these jewels, they're crown jewels that were on loan from this royal government or something like that, and they've been let out from the vault for the first time in forever, and they... Are under under lock and key all the time. The security guards all the time. They're in this big room in the museum. People are walking around the room all the time. Obviously, that's what they were going to steal. I don't know. It just seemed kind of. It just seemed kind of you know in the end for lack of a better term. I know that's not a word, but I just I was a little disappointed that that was what they ended up going with. It was I was surprised, but also not surprised. It was kind of weird. I I honestly do think, but. Let me say this. The, those flaws can feasibly be considered minor ones because the large majority of this movie is a lot of fun, right? Sandra Bullock is great as a cocky Debbie Ocean. She's the sister. I'm not, I forget if she's the younger sister or older sister, but she. I think she's the younger sister. She's Debbie Ocean, uh, younger sister, let's say, of george clooney's danny ocean who i also i will say very quickly they very much resisted the urge to have danny ocean who apparently is dead in this universe right they resisted the temptation to have him come back from the dead there's a scene right at the end of the movie where she's sitting in front of his grave and she makes a martini for him and says you would have loved it bro and i honestly thought for a second there because the camera kind of lingers on her I honestly thought he would walk up behind her, but I'm I'm really happy they didn't do that. I'm happy they resisted the urge to do that because I, I feel like it would have cheapened the movie a little bit, right? I mean, it's not about Danny anymore; it's about Debbie, right? And I want to see more. I want to see more cons by Debbie. I want to see bigger ones, frankly. But anyway, Sandra Bullock, Debbie Ocean, Kate Blanchett as her uh, r- number one right hand woman, Lou. I already mentioned that Rihanna surprised me with how much I enjoyed her scenes and uh, the other ones, Helena Bonham Carter and Sarah Paulson are pretty awesome. Minnie Kaling isn't given that much to do, but she's still pretty good too. I, I-, I think there's a funny scene with her mom and her parents, what kind of lampoons Indian families, I guess, which is <laughs> pretty entertaining for me personally. But yeah, so Helena Bonham Carter, Sarah Paulson, Minnie Kaling are pretty good. Um, R- Richard Armitage is good too as the kind of patsy they set up. But I mean, in the grand scheme of he things, he's pretty unimportant. He's just kind of a pretty face. Uh, to kind of stand by, I guess. But the standout of this movie, and I mentioned before that we were going to get back to Anne Hathaway, she is by far and away the best part of this movie. She just seems like she's having the most fun. She emotes so much in every scene and just generally looks like she's having a good time acting. You know, it's just fun to watch her scenes as she embodies the spoiled Hollywood socialite who is think she's better than everyone else, and when she gr- joins the crew at the end of the movie, it doesn't really change her character at all. Except you got to see her have this fun instead of instead of having fun separately from this from this great cast, she has fun with them. Even if her reason is, I don't have a lot of female friends, I still think it, it works for the kind of light tone of this movie. I mean, I guess all of the Ocean's movies pretty have, have this very like slick tone to them, right? This kind of fun walking music type, if that makes sense, type of feel to it, right? And in that sense, Anne Hathaway nails it. And it's just kind of fun also to see Anne Hathaway come this far. I feel like I've seen pretty much every single movie she's in, uh, or she has been, I should say, since The Princess Diaries to now. And it's crazy to see the kind of actor she's become. She's a, you know, a Oscar-winning actor, right? So it's, it's pretty cool to see her have this much I know I've said that word like 8,000 times, but that is what it is, right? And I think this movie on the whole is fun. It's solidly average, I think. Far better than Ocean's 12, which frankly was awful, but I don't think it's quite as good as 11 or 13, both of which I think accomplished the whole ensemble cast doing a heist. That whole thing I think it accomplishes far better, but... I still think it's a fun time at the theaters, and it's probably deserving of your money and and your ticket and your time. But maybe just wait for cheap Tuesdays, though. It's probably for the best. All right, time for the best movie of the episode, The Incredibles 2. I had so much fun watching this movie, honestly. If you want to just avoid the rest of the review and know that I really liked it before going to see it or after coming to see it... I just loved this movie, but let's get more in depth into why I love this movie so much with the review of The Incredibles 2. It's just so fantastic. This is actually the end credit music, I should say, from the first movie. I couldn't find the end credit music from the second one. But after I stayed for the whole credits and uh, let me say this right now, there is no after credit scene, but I stayed for the whole credits because they're always so fun to watch and the music is so fantastic. And Michael Giacchino, we'll talk a little more about him a little later on in the review, but... This is the end credits music from the first one, but still fantastic, don't you think? It's, it hasn't really aged all that much in 14 years, which is crazy to think about that it's been that long since the first one, right? And I mean, since Brad Bird's 2004 outing for Pixar, fans have been really clamoring. I mean, I have been certainly for another adventure in the animated world of supers, as they call it, you know? And we've, we've been getting a lot of really good movies from Pixar over the last several years, but the Parr family had yet to get this kind of follow-up And Bird brings them back for Incredibles 2. And like I said in the follow-up and everything until now, it's just such a pleasure to watch and enjoy, right? So let me catch you up real quick. right? A quick quick recap, right? After Mr. Incredible slash Bob Parr, who is voiced by Craig T. Nelson, and A Last Girl, his wife, uh, Helen Parr, who is voiced by Holly Hunter. They help their children, Dash, who actually is voiced by Huck Milner, who replaces Spencer Fox from the first one. Uh, Their children, Dash and Violet, who is voiced by Sarah Vowell. So in the first one, Bob and Helen help their kids embrace their powers. They grow as a family. In this one, they're sought out by Winston and Evelyn Dever, the Devers, as they're called, right? So they're voiced by Bob Odenkirk and Catherine Keener. And uh, those are the two siblings that run the world's largest telecommunications company. And they're determined to bring supers back into the spotlight in a big way because at the end of the last movie, a big part of the movie was that superheroes had been banned. They'd been outlawed and they'd been forced into hiding not and they were told not to help and that's still the situation as of incredibles 2 actually which starts i want to say seconds after the first one ends so there's no time jump like a lot of people were speculating this movie starts today as it ended in 2004 right but that's that in general what i just kind of described about the devers that's pretty much the movie in a nutshell but as you might guess it's not really about all that stuff right it's about how the Pars grow as a family and how they learn to pick each other up when they fail, right? In the film, I think very deftly explores each character's strength and also their weakness. And I think it does it it does it does so well by thrusting Holly Hunter's Elastigirl slash Helen into the spotlight, right? Remember in the first film, she was relegated to the worrying wife as her husband went on covert missions. She is now the hero entrusted with a dangerous nightlife while Bob slash Mr. Incredible learns to adapt as a stay-at-home dad. And... It sounds pretty simple, right? It sounds like, you know, your typical kind of role reversal, even though I don't think it's necessarily a role reversal because, I mean, Elastigirl obviously was a badass superhero in her own right. And this was pretty easily laid out in the trailer. The film still makes it so much more than that because Brad Bird really manages to get Craig T. Nelson to show the genuine love bob has for his family really show even though he's trying to accept the fact that he's no longer the one saving the day and posing for the camera and all that stuff right you know what just occurred to me as i'm talking right now i'm pretty sure in the first movie there's a scene where bob turns to the camera or kind of turns to look past the camera and he goes showtime i should really look for that clip oh man too bad I didn't look it for it for this episode. Oh, well, whatever. It's not a big deal. Probably wouldn't have been that noticeable as, like, Craig T. Nelson's voice, but, oh, well, I just... I can't believe I didn't think about that until right now. Oh, well. But anyways, back to the review. Sorry for that little interruption. Back to the review. The uh, villain. I want to talk about the villains. The screen slaver. And pretty interesting name, right? He, he delivers some pretty biting social commentary. One of the ones is, you don't talk, you just watch talk shows, right? He talks about... It, it, it's kind of like... Pretty pretty relevant, I guess, for for social commentary. The the screenslaver is all about how this person believes that society is like his his name might suggest, is is enslaved to their screens. And so he decides to go one step further and uses people's screens by broadcasting like a hypnotic signal that'll make people do what they want, and he can hijack planes and trains and automobiles. No, yeah, helicopters actually. But uh it was a very interesting way I do this, especially considering, you know, modern in modern day, because The Incredibles is set in like the alternate kind of retro futurist 50s, 60s kind of world of Superman from the, you know, in real life. It's set in kind of that era of design and technology, right? Except with like, you know, maglev trains and energy bikes and all this crap, right? But it was kind of fun to have that kind of era take on the Issues of twenty eighteen, right? Because you often might hear com- complaints that oh, young people today are all locked on their phones, and you know, you, you often see people you know everyone's sitting on trains, staring at their phones. They're walking, they're staring at their phones. And I'm guilty of it too. I am. I'm not saying I'm not. My job, no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't put it on my job. So I was going to say, my job makes me look at my phone a lot as a producer for a radio station. You're booking guests, you're sending texts, you're receiving emails, so on and so forth. You're always in contact with your bosses and your coworkers and your hosts and so on and so forth. But I'm not going to put it on my phone. I know I, I look at social media a lot. I look I look at, you know, you can watch Netflix on your phone now. You can download episodes right to your phone and watch it there as you commute places. You can listen to podcasts, as I hope you do with It's Showtime, right? But in, the, in a general sense, people are enslaved to their phones and to their TVs and to their computers, right? So in that sense, the screenslaver is really interesting in terms of what he says, right? But the character itself and the eventual kind of Scooby-Doo-esque unmasking is a bit lackluster, honestly. It's not a huge flaw, but in an otherwise fantastic movie, it's a pretty noticeable dip in quality, right? Anytime they do anything with the screen slaver, even though there's some pretty interesting visual moments, the actual character itself and the eventual reveal is so is so expected, it's not a surprise. It's, it's the same problem that you run into with Ocean's 8, like I just mentioned, right? The reveal is so hinted at and it's so obvious that it, it's almost disappointing when the film doesn't go in another direction and just does that instead, right? I think that's almost unavoidable because it almost seems like this movie has decided to be a serialized episode of television, right? Like an episode, like the the incredible family does it again, right? And and here's the villain of the week, they vanquish. It's kind of like that, right? Because everything is, is wrapped up pretty neatly, which is why I would probably say the first movie is still a little better. It's still a little darkier, darker, it's a little edgier, but the... I'll say that the most welcome change between the first movie and the second movie is the, just the tremendous amount of comedy. My goodness, the movie just completely embraces humor in a way that the first one, the first one was still funny, right? But it only kind of, if you're comparing them, the the first one only really scratches at the surface, whereas the second one really goes all out. And the character at the center of the humor is Jack-Jack, the little baby from the first one. I don't know if you remember, but in the first one, at the very, 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 very end, Uh, Syndrome escapes with the baby and he starts to cry and then you learn that Jack-Jack has powers and he kind of morphs and does all this stuff and that's what causes Syndrome to drop the baby and then he eventually dies when he gets caught his cape gets caught in the jet, right? And the parents don't know that Jack-Jack has powers, but the audience knows that Jack-Jack has powers, right? And every single scene with the baby discovering his powers is just brilliant. It combines the innocence of a baby with some wild powers like dimension hopping and spontaneous combustion to Superman laser eyes, right? And those are just a handful of the ones he displays, and it might sound hyperbolic, but Jack-Jack legitimately had the entire theater just rolling with laughter. Old people, young people, people my age. There was a little girl who was sitting a few seats down from me. She was just absolutely cracking up. Like People loved all of those moments. His character is easily, easily the highlight of the entire film. Edna Mode, who is actually voiced by director Brad Bird, makes a big-time return. has <laughs> a great moment where Edna decides to babysit Jack-Jack for a few, a few for a day or so so Bob can get his kind of wits about him. And it does work for both work out for both of them. And in this in similar to the first one where Helen takes Jack Jack to the at to Edna's and Edna kind of shows off all the incredible supersuits, right? Bob goes back to pick up his son From Edna, and you see the new super suit she has designed to deal with all his various powers. Oh my goodness, what a fantastic scene! Edna is a great character on her own, but with Jack Jack, pretty great. Honestly, such a funny character, funny set of characters. But Jack, I can't go on enough about how Jack Jack is the highlight, the heart of the movie, honestly. And the visuals and song, I can't go, I can't. Or music, I should say, I can't go on without not mentioning them. The visuals, they remain tremendous. And it actually almost seems like Pixar has kind of decided to embrace the comic book like art design. They choose to have some of the fight scenes play play out as if they're ripped right off a page of a comic book, honestly. Like there's a really cool part where um, Violet is fighting some of these other kind of B list superheroes, and one of them can shoot like electricity, and and the, the lightning bolt. Is fires at her purple shield, and there's is, is a great moment where she she's inside her purple shield, and the lightning bolt zigzags through the air and hits the purple shield. And it, if you were to freeze that moment, it looks like it could have been hand drawn. Honestly, like it was so cool looking, and they do. I almost feel like I mentioned they they decided to go a little more towards the comic booky art design versus the straight. 3d cgi design also for the record i did not see this movie in 3d i saw it in imax but not 3d and i think that's the best way to see it i don't think the 3d really brings anything to this but seeing it in imax and all the huge set pieces the action set pieces are awesome it was so much fun and of course like i mentioned right off the top Michael giacchino returns to score the sequel he did the first one and he uses the jazzy sounds of the 50s and 60s to bring the action to life in just an amazing way honestly whether it's elastigirl Traveling through the downtown core to find the screenslaver or Jack Jack doing battle with the local wildlife. The music is just the lifeblood of this movie in a really crucial way. And Michael Giacchino does an amazing, a wonderful job with it. And I, I can't wait to hear the soundtrack when it comes to Spotify or even buy it on a CD. Honestly, it's, it's so much fun. And to, to end off the Incredibles 2 review, it's just simply Pixar having a blast, both with movie making and just delighting the audience. A lot of fan service. Like I said, I don't think it's necessarily better than the first one, but it still combines the emotional beats of, you know, the, Disney-fi- the Disney-fied, the Disnified storytelling viewers have come to love, right? With- some, just some wicked, some absolutely wicked action sequences. Some that honestly even rival the best kind of live action movies. It's pretty crazy how cool the action is. And I know they can do it because it's an animated movie, so they can do things you can't do it with real people. But it looks so cool, so much fun. It's just funny, it's light. And at the same time, it manages to deliver some pretty poignant messages about accepting things that are out of your control, right? So for all those reasons and more, incredible those The Incredibles 2 is my favorite movie I've seen, at least in the past month. I mean, I honestly think I enjoyed myself watching this movie in a more honest way, in a more real way, in a more lighthearted way that made me feel better about going to see this, going to see a movie. I think I enjoyed it more than even Solo. I think I enjoyed it more than Avengers Infinity War than most of the movies I've seen this year, honestly, which is pretty crazy if you think about it like that, right? Because even the Infinity War ends on a kind of down note, even if you know most of those characters are coming back, right? But it ends on all the, all a bunch of people dying, right? Whereas The Incredibles 2 ends with superheroes being welcomed back into the spotlight and Jack-Jack and doing something funny and the, and the family all being together and them solving fighting crime and solving mysteries and all this stuff, right? And that is what makes it so much fun. And then it ends and goes right into the credits with some more amazing Gichino music, right? So all I can say is, to end things off, if you're not seeing this movie in theaters, you honestly, truly would be doing yourself a big-time disservice that's it for movie reviews from me today thank you as always for listening i kind of changed up the schedule last minute as today was supposed to only be uh hotel artemis and oceans eight and then the next episode was actually going to be The Incredibles 2 and Jurassic World 2. And instead, as you know, we had three reviews today and we'll actually be going with Jurassic World 2. And that new comedy tag, you know, it has very star-studded cast, Hannibal Buress, John Hamm, Rashida Jones, Jeremy Renner, Ed Helms, etc. So keep an eye out or an ear, I guess, actually, for that next week or the week after. But for now, you've been listening to episode 24 of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Eid Mubarak to those of you celebrating this weekend. And of course, have a good night.